going to invite you to open your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 today. As you're turning there, I want to just bring to your mind a very familiar poem that was written by Linda Ellis a number of years ago, simply entitled The Dash. I'm not going to go through the poem just because I don't have it memorized, but uh, I want to give you just the, the gist of the poem. The gist of the poem is this, a man is born, and there you have on his tombstone his birth date, and the man dies, and there you have on the tombstone his death date. And in between the birth date and the death date is a dash. And the author of the poem said it's not so much the birth date that's important or the end date that's important, but it's how you spent the dash. In other words, how did you live your life? And what I want us to think about this morning is what will God do with you? That dash. What will God do with you in your life? And so I'm going to invite your attention here to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and we're going to examine these 18 verses and make four or five observations as we do so. And first of all, as we think about what will God do in your life, the answer may be up to you. That very first verse tells us that we are in the hands of God. And so we might say that it's difficult to say exactly what God's going to do in our life. Look at verse 1. For all this I considered in my heart, even to declare all this, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. The, the righteous, those who are what? Right doers. Don't complicate the word. Righteous just means to do the right thing. So here's someone who's righteous, and here's someone who is wise, someone who is not only educated, but is, has taken the education from beneath, if you will, and the wisdom from above, and combined those two things and conducted their lives in a way that's honorable. And so the righteous and the wise and their works, all in the hands of God. No man knoweth either love or hatred by all that is before them. Now verse 2, all things come alike to all. If you were looking at this translation and leaving out the words that are not in the original language, it might say something like this, all alike to all. And then there is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not. And... As is the good, so is the sinner, and he that sweareth, as he that feareth an oath. All right, so I, maybe you're like me. You look at this and you say, all right, there is one event. I've, I've underscored that in my Bible here. There's one event, but now we've got conversation about the righteous, the wicked, the clean, the unclean, uh, the good, the sinner, the one that swears, the one that fears the oath. And so it's, it's almost like a, a contradiction, if you will, the good and the bad, but not really. You see, there's one event that's going to usher its way into the life of every single person on the earth, and that event is death. It's been said that death comes every day to someone and someday to everyone, and the statistics of, of death are one out of one. As it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. We're all going to experience it. You know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that there is one 
enemy that's still waiting to be destroyed, and that enemy is death. We're all going to, it, it doesn't matter whether we're good, whether we're bad, whether we're righteous or unrighteous, whether we're uh, uh, sinful as God's Christian or sinner as one who has yet to become a Christian. Doesn't matter. We're all going to experience this event. And then it says in verse 3, this is an evil, speaking of death, among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all, yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is the right heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. And so with this knowledge that we are all going to die, there is a temptation by some to say, okay, well, we're all going to die. I'm just going to live life in misery. I know that this evil is coming. I can't avoid it. I'm just going to be miserable. Or there is the temptation to say, uh, death is coming. I know it. I'm just going to act a fool. I'm just going to live. I'm just going to be crazy. I'm going to do whatever I want, right? What does the Bible say? Look at the next verse, verse number four. Because we, we move from the concept of it's difficult to say exactly what God's going to do in our life, but he is going to be involved in our life. But in verse number four, life is the operative word here. Life is the important word. What is he going to do in our life? For to him, verse four, that is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Isn't that interesting? It's almost a little bit humorous if you think about it. So back in the day, they didn't think about dogs the way that my wife thinks about dogs. I remember we moved to Virginia back several years ago uh, to work with the church in Lynchburg. Now this was, uh, this is the B.C. era of the Ritchie household before children, and so my wife is at home, and I'm thinking, you know, she, she's, a, she's newly married, we're newly married, I need to, I need to have a, an extra body in the house just for her to, just for her to hang out with if I'm not there, and so we, we got us a dog, little Lacey, loved Lacey, before that, Emily didn't care anything about dogs, I'm just being honest with you, she, it's not that she, you know, hated them or was mean or ugly to them or anything like that. She just didn't care about them. Well, we got little Lacey. And you know what? It completely revolutionized her when it came to animals. And now it doesn't matter how big or how small, she'll be really happy even with a big old Great Dane sitting right in her lap. Am I right? I think she would do it. And so, uh, but back then, this time, they didn't think like that about dogs. A lion, on the other hand, now they wouldn't want a lion in, sitting in their lap, but a lion was thought of as, man, now that's an animal. That is a fantastic beast. I've been to Africa, as some of you have, and, and you've been out in the bush and, and uh, maybe on safari and, and out in the distance is a lion. Or maybe you have been as blessed as I have and been 10 feet, maybe that's not a blessing, but maybe you've been like 10 feet away from a lion. I remember Peyton was with me on a trip, and uh, I think maybe this was his second or third trip there, and we were out on safari um, in uh, the Angorgoral Crater, if I remember right, and there was a lion that was laying under a bush, 
we were trying to get the, this is really stupid in hindsight, but we were trying to get that lion to get up and move about when that lion was probably better off just sitting still. Well, that beast was absolutely remarkable. But guess what? It's better to be a, a live dog than a dead lion. Why so? Well, you keep going. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. And then verse 6, also their love, their hatred, their envy, it's perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Now, one of the issues that Solomon had, and, and, and you know this from, from reading this wonderful book, Solomon was... Um, really frustrated by this idea that one of these days he's going to be dead and gone and nobody's going to remember him. And the reality is that's going to happen to all of us if the Lord allows the world to stand long enough. Now, you may lose someone very special to you, as I have. Probably all of us have lost someone special to us, and we may remember that person for the rest of our lives. But you go another 100 years, 200 years, a 1,000 years, that person may very well be completely forgotten. It doesn't mean that they were a wonderful person or an evil person. It doesn't matter. Eventually, they're going to be forgotten. And Solomon struggled with that a little bit. So what is important according to this? The importance is live your life in a way that honors God. Because right now is the only opportunity that you have to do it. When you're dead and gone, you have no ability to reform yourself so that people have a better opinion of you, right? No chance of doing that. And so what you have to do is right now, as John would write, be faithful. Isn't that interesting in Revelation 2 and verse 10? Be thou faithful unto, through the point of death. Not after, because after it's too late. It doesn't matter after. You've already made a decision. But right now, while you're living, let God work in your life and be faithful. And then you look at verse number 7. Life is something to be enjoyed. It is. Life is something to be enjoyed. I think, uh, you know, sometimes we as Christians, we feel like we have to be stoics. In other words, we can't have any fun. Well, that's not exactly what the good book teaches. The Bible teaches that we can have fun in this life. In fact, if you think about Psalm 23, where it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in, what kind of pastures? Green pastures. What is the significance of that? Well, a green pasture is a whole lot better than a brown pasture. What does green indicate? Life, abundance, health. A brown pasture, not so much. And so Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, 
Or as one of my children, I won't name which, used to say when they were little and didn't know differently the whole experience. Well, God wants us to have a whole experience in life. He wants us to enjoy life. Ecclesiastes tells us that very thing. Look at verse number 7. Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. It's interesting to me how that, that which we take on the inside is tied to experiencing happiness or joy. Isn't that interesting? What is one of the favorite themes of Christians? Getting together for a, can we call it a fellowship meal? I'll come back and define that in a second, but a fellowship meal and pig out on a church-made buffet. Isn't that one of the favorite things of Christians? I mean, we've all done it. And if we haven't, we probably should experience it at least one time in our life. There's no greater cook than a Christian cook. In fact, I remember just over a year ago, uh, we had over 200 folks in this room. And then we exited to the room behind us there. And we had a, what we called a fellowship meal, following our friends and family. It was wonderful. I can't wait till we do that again. Hopefully we will do that again. And so... Um, now, just a aside, a parenthetical note. There is no such thing as a fellowship meal. There is such thing as Christians who are in fellowship with one another enjoying a meal together. Does that make sense? Because we don't have to be eating a meal together to experience fellowship. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, as the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for it was there that God commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So if I understand that passage correctly, if I'm going to enjoy this life and the life to come, then I'm going to have to experience fellowship with my brethren. But that doesn't begin and end with a meal. It is a constant. But isn't it interesting? how that Solomon discussed this idea of partaking in food in connection with joy. But then add to that. Look at verse number 8. Let thy garments be always white. Let thy garments be always white. You look at that passage and immediately what comes to your mind perhaps is white, purity. Your garment should be white. That's not what this is talking about. If you were to go into an extremely warm climate, like Orlando, Florida, where Disney World is, if you were to go to an extremely warm climate, are you going to wear all black? No. Why? It's not going to be comfortable. You're going to get hot. So what will you do? You put on or you put on light-colored clothes in order to be comfortable. And that's what Solomon's talking about here. The garments, let your garments be always white. Be comfortable. Be com now, that doesn't mean next Sunday we all show up in shorts and a t-shirt. 
if it's warm enough, but that's not what this is saying. It's just saying that there is something to be said for being comfortable in what we wear. Look at the next part. And let thy head lack no ointment. Let thy head lack no ointment. This works out really well for me because I I put ointment on my head all the time because otherwise it's just so dry, right? Especially in the wintertime. Well, ointment, ointment had two purposes. On one hand, it served the purpose of a, of a medicine, a medical treatment, right? If you had a, a cut or maybe a rash or something along those lines, you might put an ointment or a treatment on it to promote healing. But there was another purpose of ointment, oil. We might say today, lotion which is to, what, provide some comfort again. If you are down in Orlando, you're wearing your white clothes, and you're out in the sun, and you have the perfect amount of hair like I do, and you forget to wear a hat, and you come back to the hotel room, and guess what? You're going to be putting ointment on that burned head. Why? Because you want to experience some comfort. And so... Whether we're talking about our garments or whether we're talking about our medication, if you please, being comfortable, experiencing joy. Verse 9, live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, of thy emptiness, if you will. Not everybody is married. Not everybody is going to be married. The Apostle Paul said, I wish that everyone could be like me. What was he saying? I wish that everybody could fly it solo, but not everybody can fly it solo. He was convinced, I believe, that in flying it solo, he was able to accomplish more for the cause of Christ than if he was married. But in this particular passage, we're talking about marriage. So in marriage, find joy. Life is too short to be miserable with your spouse. And so, what should you do? You should look at trying to make the relationship better. Better. That's why we have passages in our Bible like Ephesians uh, chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3 that talk about the relationship that we ought to be developing with our mate. And then it says, look at the next part. For that is thy portion in this life, and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. For there is no work, labor, verse 9, work, verse 10, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. Right now is the time for us to experience our joy. And right now, right now, we got to work. I think sometimes we look at that word work as a bad four-letter word. I think some some young people think that. I think some, as they get a little older, they still think that. Work is a bad four-letter word. But work is not bad. In fact, when you go back to the very first book of the Bible and look in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, What was Adam put in the garden to do? To work it. Working the garden of Eden was not something that he was told to do because of his sin. Sin came after the fact. 
Work is good for you. Work is good for your family. Work is good for your town. Work is good for the nation and for the world. And we ought to have more people that work, put their hand to the plow and work and give their very best in doing so. And guess what? When you do it, you're going to feel good. You're going to feel good. You know, you have a child and a child is being challenged to, to work and you say, all right, how are you going to feel when you've completed that task? Well, I'm going to feel like I've accomplished something. Well, as you grow, how do you feel when you've completed your job? Well, I'm going to feel fulfilled like I've accomplished. It gives me a sense of purpose. All right. So what do we have? Number one, when you go back and you look at the first few verses there of chapter nine, what will God do in your life? It may be difficult to say. But number two, there in verses four through six, it's the word life that we need to be focusing on. Right now, we need to be letting God work in our life, even if it's difficult for us to figure out what it is that he's doing in our life. And verses 7 through 10, as you're living your life in view of death, it's okay to have a little fun. Can I tell you that? Are you all right with it? You can leave this place and you can have fun when you do, Christian. All right, look at verse number 11. I returned... Plans don't always work out. This is our next observation. Plan on, plans don't always work out the way we'd like for them to. Number 11, verse 11. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise nor yet riches to men of understanding nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. For man also knoweth not his time, as the fishes that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men snared in the evil time when it falleth suddenly upon them. Sometimes, sometimes life just doesn't make sense. Last Sunday, I believe it was, I was on a bike ride and I was riding down by the river and as I was riding down by the river, there were so many people fishing. And I thought, I made the wrong decision today. I'm on my bicycle and I should have my fishing pole in my hand. Because I, I saw some of the fish that were coming out of the river. I fished the river probably half a dozen times last year. I didn't catch a thing. But I'm telling you, I saw one out of the river that big. Trout. Huge. Where were you last year with your trout? Well, that trout's going along. Oh, man, life is good. I'm just, I'm enjoying it. See, talking about the fish. Life is good. I'm enjoying everything. And all of a sudden, I see, I see food. I see that fly. Man, life is getting ready to get better. And Mr. Fish grabs the fly. Oh, life couldn't get any worse. You just give it another hour and it will. Sometimes life just doesn't make sense. Sometimes we just don't understand why things turn out the way that they do. And then what do we begin doing? God, are you there? We start questioning God. We start wondering, God, why did you allow that to happen? God, I don't get it. I 
I'm righteous, I'm wise, I'm living faithfully, I'm doing all of these things to the very best of my ability to honor you, and now all of a sudden this has happened? It doesn't make sense. It's not always going to make sense. It's not. But God is is still there, and God has not ceased to care about you, and God has not stopped working in your life life. And I go back to that very first book of the Bible, and there's so much greatness in that foundational book, the book of beginnings. As you, as you think about that, that great book of beginnings, and you get to passages like Genesis chapter 12, and God tells Abram, as he's called at that time, he says, Abram, I want you to get out of town, and I want you to go over here. And Abram said, God, I'm really comfortable right where I'm at. I believe I'll stay right here. And God says, no, Abram, I've got something better in mind for you over here. Just trust me. And he did. And it was better. I think about Isaac. I think about Jacob. I think about Joseph. In each one of those cases, God says, I need you to do this. And and they could say, no, God, I don't believe that's the way I want to go. And God said, nope. I got something better in mind for you. Ultimately, it was the land promise. Through thy seed, I'm going to bless the nations. He said, I got something better for you. Just let go. Trust me. And they did. And it was better. Sometimes life doesn't make sense. We don't get it. We don't understand. We feel like everything's going well. We're doing as we should. And all of a sudden, life happens. And where are you at, God? Look at the last part of the text. Look at verse number 13. What will God do in your life? The answer may be up to you. Look at that word may. The answer may be up to you. This wisdom have I seen also under the sun and it Seemed great unto me. Seemed great unto me. There was, let me tell you a story, Solomon says, there was a little city and few men within it. And there came a great king against it and besieged it and built great bulwarks against it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no man delivered that same poor man. Then said I, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of wise men are heard in the quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. Now, rewind. Go back to verse number 14. There's a city. There's a king. The king has come to besiege it. But there is a wise man, a poor man. This individual has the ability to save said city. Look at verse 15. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. 
That's what the translators wants, want you to see. But contextually, that's not what this passage is saying. In fact, what this passage is saying is, and by his wisdom, he may have, a better, better translation here is, he may have saved the city. When you read through the context, the immediate context, is this not exactly what is happening? Here is the king, he's come to besiege, to destroy the city. Here is the wise and the poor man, and he knows what to do, see his wisdom. He knows what to do to possibly save the city. But as you continue to go, what happened to him? He was despised, and his words were not heard. He didn't save the city. What's the point? What is God going to do in your life? What is God going to do through you? The answer may be up to you. You may be working through something, and maybe there are other folks involved in, in, in this process, whatever it is. And, and as you are working through it, you know, they're saying, this is what we need to do. And, and you say, wait a second, you know what? I, I've studied up on this, and I've prayed about this even. I, I've asked God for wisdom, and I believe he's given me wisdom on how to, to deal with this particular situation. And, and, and I believe this is the way that we need to go. And they, they say, wonderful. Boy, I appreciate your study. I appreciate your insight. And I think you're right. Maybe we're talking about our job. Maybe we're talking about uh, our home. Maybe we're talking about school. Maybe, maybe we're even talking about the church uh, construct. Could be any number of things, right? And we say, yes, great, we're going to do it. And as a result of, of doing that, things work out wonderfully. And in, in hindsight, we may speculate, and speculate is all we could do, and say God's providence was there in that process. And I say speculate is all that we can do because you and I can say that God was working in that moment, or there we see God's providence, but you don't know. Who knows, right? The book of Esther, who knows? You may have been there in such a time as this, but you can't say with absolute certainty. Flip side, here's the situation, same types of illustrations maybe, and you say, all right, this is what's before us. I've studied up on this. I have uh, some wisdom. I've prayed to God. He's granted me wisdom about this situation, and I believe that we should go this direction. And other folks say, no, not going to do that. I don't believe we're going to go in that direction at all. And they put their foot down. You have no control over it. And guess what? The consequences are devastating. They're devastating. You see what I'm saying? What is God going to do in your life? It may be hard to say. But as you live your life, enjoy it. And as you live your life enjoying it, realize that sometimes things are going to come along and they're just not going to make, make sense. And you might even question God in the process, but you just hold on and you remember that God keeps working. What is God going to do in your life? It may, and it may not, be entirely up to you. 
But this next moment is. In this next moment, God says, I want to begin working in your life. I want to begin working within you as a child of God. And the book of Romans chapter 8 reminds us of the fact that God works within us, that he lives in us, that he works within us. And in this moment, you can begin to allow God to work in your life. It comes by making an intentional decision. Lord, I want you to be the Lord of my life. And I'm going to confess, I believe you are the Son of God. And upon that confession, you are willing to allow yourself to be immersed in water, to have every sin of the past washed away, because when you're raised out of that watery grave, you're new. New in quality. You're a Christian, a Christian, someone who belongs to Christ. And as you walk in Christ, God is is living in you. God is working in you. And now you get to start living in view of eternity. Would you make that choice? This one's up for you. Think about it. Together we now stand and as we sing.